0: If you want to paint it black and white like this and you say I want a block of VLMX and a block of VO2 max training, then I would advise work on the VLMX when you have the time. Like your VLMX is not your quick fix.
1: The Treathlon Show 238. What's up, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of That Triathlon Show, the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com. I'm your host, Michael, and on today's episode, we have part two of the interview with Sebastian Weber. Last week, if you didn't listen to that already, was a lot of it was to do uh, about the new updated version of the inside software, how it works, how accurate it is, and so on. But uh, this week, we will be more generally speaking about training and physiology. So not uh, related to the software per se, but just uh, the general concepts of that every endurance athlete and coach should know if they really want to get the most out of their training program. So we'll tackle various subjects like block periodization versus mixing different types of training, the time course of adaptations for VO2 max and VLA max potential issues with high intensity training especially if your VLA max is low and uh, differences in different disciplines like uh, differences between VLA max when we compare cycling running and swimming we will talk training zones and we'll talk training stress and recovery and an interesting aspect that Sebastian uh, pointed out of using carbohydrate combustion rates to figure out how much intensity is uh, feasible to do or how much recovery is needed between those harder workouts in particular. So lots of great stuff coming up in this uh, interview. We'll get right into it after thanking our sponsors, Precision Hydration. Precision Hydration make electrolytes to match your uh, individual sweat sodium concentration. So they have low sodium concentration, medium sodium concentration, and high sodium concentration uh, drink mixes that uh, you can choose depending on where you sit on the scale. And to figure out where you sit on the scale, well, they have a simple online sweat test that you can take on PrecisionHydration.com. It takes just a few minutes and you just need to answer 10 multi-choice questions and uh, that will give you a good ballpark estimate for where you sit. You can get uh, 15% off your order if you want to try Precision Hydration's electrolyte products with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the world-leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles and high-performance eyewear. And their most recently launched product is the newly updated version of their flagship wetsuit model. This is the Maverick X2. And it takes all that was great about the Maverick X and then adds some even more superb features to the new version, like uh, a new taping technology that connects the hips and the shoulders for optimal transfer of uh, force for the propulsion of the stroke, added buoyancy, so better buoyancy than the predecessor and so on. They still have all those classic Roka technologies like the ARM sub-technology, so just taking something that was already great and making it better. You can get that or any other Roka product for 20% off with the promo code that you can get on roka.com forward slash TTS. Now let's get into the interview. Just a quick note, apologies for the potential sound quality issues on my end. I'm not sure if uh, we might manage to fix that in editing. But uh, yeah, I had uh, some poor microphone setting choices on when we did this interview. Unfortunately, I didn't. actually didn't check what I had set. So uh, my mess up. Sorry for that. But I hope that you still enjoy this interview. Uh, Let's hear it. The interview with Sebastian Weber. Right, and uh, let's move into some questions about using uh, this testing and testing results to inform training decisions. And one very common question that I've been thinking about a lot and uh, that I get a lot is if you have your results and you decide to focus on either via, like, VO2 max is what you need to improve or VLA max is what you need to change, uh, what what's your thinking around should you kind of block periodize and focus mostly just on that one variable that you're trying to change or versus hitting several different intensity levels or training zones and applying mixed stimuli in a training block
0: yeah i would i would i would choose a block version um of course like if you say okay my first goal and my primary goal is whatever let's say for example increase vo2max and my secondary goal is to work on my VLMX, then in this VO2max block, if you want to call it this way now, simplifying things, you don't want to do something that basically hampers what you're trying to do afterwards, right? So yep. um, that should be pretty obvious. So, for example, maybe most common thing um, or most common problem you could run into in triathlon is say, "Yeah, oh, I want to in- in- improve or increase my VO2max and I'm doing what kind of interval training that accidentally increases my max. And then, guess what? Um, after after three weeks, uh, after sorry, sorry, after three months, you come out of the block and um, find out FTP hasn't changed, basically because uh, you increase VO two max and VLA max uh, simultaneously, and it blunts the effect. And you don't you don't see it in the FTP, right? Because it's created of both. Um, so that could be that could be you know an an issue here. Um, but basically, I would prefer I would. Always, especially in this scenario where you want to have a general answer and not something specific to an athlete, like with a specific athlete and a specific training program, it might be different. But the general, if you want to be on the safe side, so to speak, yeah, do it blockwise, concentrate on one, make sure that you are not hurting the other, so to speak, and then concentrate on the next one and try to conserve. That's the term I'm using try to conserve the, um, the, um, you know what you achieved in the previous block. That's by yeah. the way. I'm also doing it in, in cyclists. When you, for example, you want to work on your sprint data, uh, or, you know your sprint ability, or you want to work on your leg speed or rhythm changes or something. Then, then you know we some, sometimes do some little like reminder sessions, so to speak, so you maintain you have a maintained dosage of a specific training content. Um, you know to 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 keep what you have achieved beforehand.
1: Yeah, and what would be the time course of something like that? So, for example, if VO two max improvement is the primary goal, how, how this might be a very much a big. It depends, but uh, but can we give give some general ideas of how how long you should focus on on one before you might move on to the other and move into maintenance mode with the with the former?
0: It is not really so much so much a depends answer because um, because if you look, for example, that. VO2 max is highly determined by your mitochondria mass, and if you look at the at the protein turnover time or half-life time of mitochondrial protein, um, you know you can you can make an informed informed guess here. Um, if you look at the time course of adaptation in something of uh, like like VO2 max, um, you can expect to see the first changes, the firm first adaptation after already approximately two to three weeks even though you might not be able to track it because it's not significant. Um, like it's not, you know, above the arrow of of, of measurement of your metabolic heart or something. Um, and then you can expect a good portion of adaptation happened after approximately eight weeks or six to eight weeks. So in this time period, if you would retest with your med card or something, um, you would expect to already see an adaptation. Not the full adaptation, right? It's not. It's not that. Stops there after six weeks, obviously, but if the training works, right? If you basically um, went into the into the into the into into the good direction, to the right direction with your training, you would be able to measure that in terms of your max after approximately two months at the latest. And then a full adaptation obviously takes longer, like until the training effect levels off, it can be three months and longer. And obviously there's a long-term adaptation. So even if you keep doing what you're doing, you will improve a little bit, a little bit. Um, So that's for the VO2 max, talking about several weeks, a few months. Um, And with the VLA max, it's a little bit different um, because I personally like to differentiate between Uh, functional adaptation and a structural adaptation. And the functional adaptation, for example, you can achieve by changing your diet, right? You just go radically on a keto, fat, protein, whatever diet. And you can expect to, within a time course of very few weeks, two to three weeks, you can expect your VLMX to go down. First reactions, even even a little bit sooner. Um, But that's not structural, right? As soon as you change, um, as soon as you change your diet again, you flip it back to high carbohydrates, for example. In this case, uh, you you would see VLMX flip around again, um, and then there's a structural adaptation, and this especially with VLMX often takes several months. So expect something here which is longer. So if you want to paint it black and white like this, and you say I want a block of VLMX and a block of VO2 max training, then I would advise work on the VLMX when you have the time. Like your VLMX is not your quick fix, except for the diet thing maybe, right? It's not your quick fix where you say, oh, I have four weeks or two months until my competition. And now I start to work on my VLMX and I expect a full adaptation. That's something you may want to do, you know, during the winter training or when you have three, four months of time, even if it's maybe spring to summer, right? Maybe you race in late summer, you start in spring. Um if you want a structural change, the bottom line is you need to ex- you know you need, you need to you know account for for more time there.
1: Mm. And does that apply in both directions? Both if you want to increase and if you want to decrease VLMX?
0: Well, in general, yes, but it's not saying I'm not saying that the time course is the same because what you always have to remember is that the structural adaptation was like you know. The VLMX that you naturally have, so to speak, it's, it's, it's how you have been built, especially in terms of muscle fiber distribution. So there's a long-term adaptation, like you do if you do the sport, you do endurance sport for years, VLMX will come down. This is also one reason, for example, why in long-term endurance sports like Ironman, um, you know, older people are able to become world champion, right? You will not see somebody in the late 30s become world champion in a 100-meter run normally. Right, that's normally not yeah. the case. Um so this works in in the in the in the long endurance sports, the marathon and 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 and, um, and triathlon and so on. Um so when you want to change it backwards, it's basically it gets harder when it goes against your nature. So if you by nature are you know more like a slow twitch guy and uh, you know you don't have a high VLMX anyway, and you want to bring it up. Um, that's much, much harder and also going to take much, much longer. And the magnitude of change you can expect is not that big. And you really have to be very specific. Like when we did it in cyclists, you have to really, you know, pull all plugs here and, 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 you know, whatever substitute creating phosphate, uh, uh creating monohydrate, go into the gym, you know, do whatever you can, um, to somehow get it higher over what you are naturally, um, gifted for because Especially if it's professional athletes in endurance sports, you then on top of that you have twenty-five, thirty hours of endurance training, which is not necessarily helping increasing your VLMX, right? So, yeah. So you fight against the nature and you fight against your
1: bike training. Yeah. Actually, that uh, reminds me something that uh, Jan Albrecht uh, talked about when he was on the podcast, is that uh, too low a VLA max, actually it might be in his book that he uh, writes in Science of Winning, he he says that too low a VLA max can be uh, a bit dangerous in terms of it's easy to dig yourself uh, a hole in training and easier to get into overtraining. And is that something that you agree with and can you explain that if if that is ca- the case or why why that is uh, Yeah I know is the case potentially?
0: Yeah I know Askar has Askar he has um, similar concerns uh, about it um that it should not be too long and it's definitely the case also uh, I would I would definitely agree with this with, with Jan here when it comes to how good you are able to cope with especially high intense trainings So Um, I would not agree when you say training load is determined here by, you know, long hours, low intensity. Then Mm. it does not really hurt. What I can definitely confirm is that when, um, when you have a lower VLMX, so to speak, the, it's a very thin line in terms of intensity. When you do interval trainings, then when you do an interval training, it's very easy to overload yourself and, and do a too hard interval. That you are not able to cope with. That's much, much easier when you are a guy with a little bit higher, higher VLA max. It's not only the VLA max, and it's also part of, of the, of the buffering capacity, and especially what is the combination of your VO2 max and VLA max. And that's something that is very important here because the VLA max, like the glycolytic part is the feeder. It's, the f- it's producing the fuel for the aerobic metabolism. So, if your VO2 max is 80, then it's, you know, then having a little bit higher VLA max can be, can be very nice because it feeds your, um, you know, it feeds your aerobic system. So, especially in sports like swimming or rowing or athletics or track cycling or even road cycling, it's, it's really helpful if your vo max is a little bit higher and it also doesn't hurt that much it's a little bit higher. And then if your VO2 max is lower, so the maximum amount of, fuel you can take from your glycolytic system is lower, then obviously the VLMX should be a little bit lower, can be a little bit lower.
1: Yeah, but uh, the reason that it is a thin line with the high intensity training, is that because it's easy to work your glycolytic system to really add its maximum capacity and it gets overloaded or what, what is the, the mechanism there for that?
0: Yeah, so I think um, the way how you want to view it as that's something, by the way, you're going to see an insight soon as a visualization, because I think it's, it will help a lot of coaches and athletes to understand their training intensity better. So the way how you want to view it is that wherever you go in training, um, you normally base your training intensity as a percentage of a maximum right? You go into the gym, you will do a one repetition maximum, you do 70% of FTP. If you read the scientific studies, they do a certain percentage of VO2 max, right? You express normally the intensity that you have in training as a percentage of your maximum. That's what you do. Now the difficulty is here that when you do an interval training for example, you trigger two systems with two different maximums. So when you max out your when you max out your VO2 max because you're doing high intense interval training, you're doing VO2 max intervals. You, you you maybe go at 110% of VO2 max whatsoever. The percentage that this triggers your VLA max obviously differs with your VLA max, right? So let's say, just give you one example, I'm making up the numbers here, right? Let's say your VO2 max is is 60 and you go at 120% of that. And let's say, this is, whatever, 450 watts, to say something, to stick with that example. Um, that's 450 watts. And your VLA max is high. Then this 450 watts is at a lower percentage of your VLA max. So you're not loading the system that much, right? Now, yeah. you do the same 450 watts because the training intensity is based on your aerobic system. But your VLMX max is only 0.3. Or let's make it simpler for myself, let's say 0.35. So it's exactly the half of the 0.7. Now, the load on your VLMX will be much, much higher. It will be actually be more than double because the activation of the glycolysis is different. But it's obviously simple mass here, right? It's much, much higher. And this is the kind of... We actually had a webinar which goes in this direction. It was called Why You Should or Not Should Base Your Training on FTP, which goes into the details here, which... If I may say that lives on our website. So it's for free. You can go and, and watch it. That explains this very precisely. Um, you base your training on one metric, but during this training, you're stimulating, you're using two different systems to say the least. I mean, also you apply a training stimulus on other systems, but um, we're talking about VO2 max and VLA max here. So if you train in 100%. 120 percent whatsoever doesn't matter. Any percentage of VO2 max, the percentage load or stimulus on your VLA max can be vastly different. And if this is low, then obviously the chances that you overload it, if you want to use this term, is much much higher. Very simple math.
1: Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And uh, yeah, the webinar is highly recommended. I remember watching watching that webinar, and it was. Uh, I I think I watched all of your webinars, but that one I think was a particularly interesting interesting one. Um, one other question that uh, in terms of training that has come up is uh, in regard to running so you did you gave quite a lot of training recommendations in our first podcast and uh, for cycling for example we now know that that for vla max if we want to reduce vla max things like high torque uh, work at uh, moderate intensities are is one of the ways that you can do that Uh, with running though uh, there are it's not as clear necessarily what uh, what is recommended. Can you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, because it's not that obvious and it's not that straightforward, partly because of the running economy thing, right? And partly because you have eccentric and concentric work and it changes a little bit. Um, in running, it is in general a little bit easier to lower your VLMX because in general, your training intensity will be comparable higher than it is in cycling, right? Hmm. Um, If you, let's say, you run three hours per week in average, um, then most likely your normal running intensity will be above what would, metabolically speaking, your base intensity training zone in cycling, right? In your cycling base intensity, you might pedal along with 1.5 to 1 minimal of lactate with whatever, 60% 60% of your threshold or something. And in running, in most cases, it's higher anyway already. And because of the running mechanics, then the, then the, then the load or the torque on the muscles might be higher as well anyway. So this, this said, um, you, you know, it's not surprising that you sometimes see lower VLMX in runners. And it's in general lower to decrease your VLMX in running but again, there's another layer like, like uh, uh, running economy in there. But in general speaking, right? In general speaking, it's a little bit easier. Um, and then if you want to specifically um, train VLMX in running, basic, you know, the basic principles, the same basic principles apply as they do in cycling. Um, just obviously, it's more difficult to, to work on the torque part. Um, what you might want to do is you might want to do some uphill running. Um, This, the logistical problem that you have to organize a very easy downhill, right? To not, uh, to not run very fast downhill and then have a very, very high intensity and hurt yourself in a, in a worst case scenario. But besides that, it's really the same thing, right? You know, intensities um, that are not too low um, and um, you know, maybe lowering uh, carbohydrate intake a little bit and, um, you know, trying if you, if, if if possible to, um, to do some uphill running as well, if you have the if you have the possibilities there. Um, So very, very similar from a general approach point of view.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And swimming, what would you say about swimming?
0: For triathletes, uh, with VLMX, I wouldn't really care that much. Okay. Um, so first, most people don't measure it anyway, because most people don't do the testing in the pool. Um, secondly, the effect of the uh, if economy, the effect of the you know, how much energy you use, is so much bigger than anything else for most non-professional triathletes, um, and sometimes even for the for the professionals. Um, and so, I would not really, yeah, maybe maybe I'm simplifying things or. But uh, I would not really care that much on your VLMX on swimming. I, I do definitely care about the economy and I would definitely care about what wetsuit you have or, you know, how you invest your energy there. Um, because the, I mean, basically the density of the water is approximately-ish uh, simplified 900 times higher than the one of air. And this is why, you know, you need so much energy. So reducing the energy cost is, is the main key for faster swimming in most In
1: most triathletes i would say all right yeah that makes sense um and then you have uh, your training zones that you get from from the report and from the test and that's something that i want to get into a little bit and uh, i actually should have opened up a report which i don't have (laughs) but i can i can do that do that quickly while i'm asking the question can you just discuss the training zones and sort of how and why you define them the way that you do
0: well, I can, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a frequently a frequently coming question, obviously, and um, we are going to change them tremendously because honestly, I know that's not answering the question, uh, but let me first say that um, we, and especially me, I did not expect so much buzz around the training zones. Um, I, I personally have to say, I have to admit, I'm guilty to uh, underestimate uh, by far how important and how you know precise people are looking at training zones because you know it's a training zone it's not a training program it's it's a zone and how you apply this training zone it's totally up to you and if the training zone is important it's totally up to you right so how we arrived at these training zones is basically give a zone for some let's say physiological ballparks where something's happening. So we have, for example, a fat max zone, which is around the intensity where fat oxidation rate are highest. We have an anaerobic threshold zone, which is a little bit above and below the maximum lactate steady state, FTP anaerobic threshold, whatsoever. Um, And then we have zones like the base training, which is a little bit more comprehensive than the standard base training because it takes into account your fueling, and it's not it's not a simple standard, you know, um, whatever x percent of your FTP zone anymore. And then we have special zones like the lactate shuttling, going back and forth um, to between you know lactate accumulation and the same amount of of lactate combustion. and this is what it currently is, and we can talk about the details and the problems. For example, this like the biggest problems actually occur in aerobic and anaerobic zones, uh, because I think there's a general misunderstanding, misunderstanding or misperception in those. But before we do that, let me say that um, in the future we will we will basically hand over this training things to you as a coach, as a user, to define your own training zones, um, and. That is because we 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 see, I mean, we work in so many different sports. I mean, people who listen to this podcast will mainly will maybe mainly know insight from triathlon or maybe from cycling. But we actually work also in rowing, in speed skating, in swimming, and we work in different countries. And lessons learned is every federation, every sport has different training zones, and they have all different training zones in different countries. So we are going to change massively how we present training zones and you're going to be able to create your your own ones um, to hopefully cope with some of the misunderstanding or misinterpretation or misuse of training zones.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. Let's just get into one that you said that has uh, uh, generated among the most amount of questions, the aerobic maximum uh, zone. And uh, I have the definitions in front of me here. So, it basically goes from where oxygen demand is 100% of VO2 max to where it's 110% of VO2 max, and importantly here, that is ox- oxygen demand and uh, not uptake demand being higher. So uh, can you explain that because that's something that has puzzled me to be honest, <laughs> and, and I don't know quite why why it is because it seems high. That's uh, the reason that it has puzzled me.
0: Yeah. So so look, let me start with something like a straightforward, like a fat max zone. Right. So if you look at yep. a fat fatmax curve, forget about inside. Just look at. You know, go, go to Google Images and put fatmax, and you will find the great work of Aska, for example, and whatever, you know, you will see fatmax has an apex. It is an intensity where the fat combustion rate is at the highest, and it's it's a range of maybe whatever forty watts or thirty watts. Right. So it's very easy. It's very easy to come up. Okay, this is your fatmax zone. Right. It's an apex. Now, the problem is, um it's not always that straightforward. So the truth is, any exercise, any effort above maximum lactate steady state will sooner or later result in reaching VO2max. Any effort which is above threshold will elicit VO2max. And this is a problem that we run into with the training zones and we basically draw a line somewhere in in the sand here, which is what you just defined here. Right, but this is a problem I feel for everybody saying, "Oh, I do VO2 max intervals." I mean, what does that mean? Because you can do a 10-minute effort. Most people mean by that a three or four or five-minute, maybe six-minute effort. But you can do a 10-minute effort. You can even do a 20-minute effort, and you will, you will, you will reach VO2 max, right? So yep. this is a difficulty when you put up a training zone and. For example, we have an anaerobic zone, and the definition of the anaerobic zone is that a certain percentage is of the energy is derived by anaerobic metabolism, right? And here yep. the problem is maybe even more ab- obvious, because obviously the faster you go, the higher the intensity, the higher the aerobic energy contribution. So then, tell me what is your anaerobic zone? Even at two hundred watts, you may be a two percent anaerobic energy combustion, right? and uh, energy production sorry um so the higher you go, the higher the anaerobic energy contribution, so where do you draw the line here right like what is for you then anaerobic zone is it twenty percent is it fifty percent is it right how much energy contribution makes it an anaerobic effort for you that's a struggle
1: good question yeah i i don't i don't know <laughs> yeah well okay but that's. I think with that, that is probably something that we, we can say for, for another day and, and we can see what, what you guys have, have cooking and how the new zones will be presented. But I agree with the general point that you made that uh, the zones aren't the training program anyway. There are so many, and, and I don't, when I make an insight, do an insight test for one of my athletes, I don't give them the zones that you give. I use the zones as a basis, but I adapt them in a special way that I kind of developed. Excellent. Love to, to hear that. To make, conti- to make them continuous, that's something that I like to have, just a continuous set yeah. Of zones. Yeah. So so maybe, yeah, it's not uh, a point that we need to, to dwell but, on so much.
0: But I mean, you know, just maybe to, to finish that off, some things that also sometimes you know, creates confusion is why are the zones sometimes overlapping, right? Like you can have whatever your medial zone or tempo zone is overlapping is almost the same as a FATMAX zone, for example, right? Or the FATMAX zone is in one case closer to the anaerobic threshold in other cases further apart. I mean, sorry, this is the reason why you want to do a performance assessment, right? Because that's, that's exactly what you want to know. You want to know what is my FATMAX zone because it's not, Always a fixed percentage of your VO two max or threshold or something, right? Yeah. Um, so I think this is important to to point out. And then, last comment on this is we define zones like we said, right? The fat max zone, the threshold zone, and then we draw, so to speak, a line in the sand and say, okay, X amount of anaerobic energy contribution is your anaerobic zone. And it's important, I think, similar like you do, to understand how this zone is derived and how it is defined. Um, but then it doesn't necessarily mean that your athlete should train in that. For example, you have, you have often have this problem in running. When you have um, a runner who's not highly trained, VO2 max 40, you know, average running speed is whatever in training, six minutes or seven minutes per kilometer or something, right? Then when you do a lactate test, you can see at this intensity is maybe the lactate level is maybe already 2.5. Directly measured, nothing calculated, right? Forget about all the fancy calculations. That's what you've measured in your raw data. Now, you look into a textbook and it says long, slow, distant base intensity training in running is a lactate concentration of 1.5. And then what you get as a training zone is something like something ridiculous high, like whatever, nine minutes 30 per kilometer or eight minutes 45 per kilometer running speed as long, slow, distant base intensity. And then we have sometimes people who are confused and say, "Yeah, but this is not running. That's you know, I, I, I don't want to run that slow." And then the answer is, "Well, but this is this is how the training zone has been defined, also in the textbook. That's nothing we came up with." The point is, if you only run, so to speak, I mean, I, sh- I shouldn't say that that only because I don't, I run much less. But um, if you if you only run, let's say, three times a week for forty minutes. But why should you run then in that long, slow distance zone? Then it's totally fine if you run in tempo, a little bit above tempo, right? Because the effort is short and you have a lot of rest in between the the training days. So, And this sometimes creates confusion, right? People think, "Ah, that's my daily training, so it has to be base zone, but it's actually not. Or from a metabolic point of view. And this is where the Mm -hmm. training zones come from. They come from metabolic point of views, and it's no fixed percentage, they are derived from what we call it the master metrics. So the anaerobic threshold is derived from anaerobic threshold. Fat max is derived from fat combustion. VO2 max is derived from VO2 max, and so on and so forth. Yep.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a great example. And and that uh, brings to mind another question, which uh, I want to talk about, which uh, is uh, the what's your view on dosage? So you mentioned there that if you only run three times per week, then you might as well run, and you are a slower runner. You might as well run at tempo all the time, uh, which makes sense. Uh, what, what's your general view on uh, on like dosing of, for example, let's say you are working on VO two max how how often should you be doing intervals uh, and uh, so on? If you are working on VLA max, how often should you be doing at some sort of high torque or medio efforts and uh, those sorts of things? Can Can you just discuss freely on on that dosage topic?
0: Well. Yeah, um, you know, I'm not sure if the dosage really, for many people, is so much of of an issue. The dosage maybe becomes an issue depending on how you can, you know, how you can perform, how how you can perform your recovery in between, and how much stressed and you know occupied you are by by your normal life besides the the the, the training, maybe. Um, but then. Basically, if the intensity is low enough, then the duration in terms of dose is mostly not really a problem, right? If you just if you just go, if you just go go slow enough, and so um, what I would do as the most simplified approach, um, I would try to maximize the time I can spend, so the training duration, right, and then have the training intensity come second, and say okay, and look at it and say okay. Um now, giving that I can train five hours per week or ten hours or fifteen hours or whatever it is, how much intensity can I put in there? and what you will find is is that when it comes to the higher intensity stuff, it is not a percentage a percentage question anymore like no matter if you are training twice a week or every day for several hours, the amount of high intense training will plateau it will level off right you can have. Whatever let's say approximately two hours per week of net training time, so not counting the resting intervals between intervals, for example right um, and then if you train twenty hours per week that's maybe like you know ten percent and if you 're training just six hours per week, then it's thirty percent high intense training um, because it's not the percentage it is it is the total amount
1: that you that you have here yeah um, and when you plan what that, do you, what do you, what do you uh, define here as the higher intensity is it Everything that is sort of above threshold or, or is it, what's your definition of higher intensity here? Yeah. When it
0: comes to the overall weekly plan, um, I think a good indicator, what you want to look at, very old school, but very, you know, functions very good, works very well is look at your carbohydrate combustion. Look at your carbohydrate combustion and look which training will empty the tank, so to speak. Because when you empty the tank and you want to train the next day, and you don't have enough time to recover and refill. You're hampering the training on the next day, right? Um, and you, you, you know, you, you, you might hamper the 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 quality of the training because you cannot do the hard intervals the next day. And you may be at risk of getting sick and uh, 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 sick and decreasing um, and decreasing performance. Um, so I think this is a very good indicator, right? Use use the carbohydrate. Combustion to make an informed decision how much carbohydrate did you use? And then think about the next day will you be able to do this exercise, even if you maybe need to fuel during the exercise, or is it too long or too hard? And this is how this is this is for me how you build a training program. When I write a training program, I think more about the recovery until the next session than about the session itself. When I fit it into the overall concept. And a good metric to make an informed and educated uh, decision on that is looking at the carbohydrate, uh, at the carbohydrate combustion. And mm. then for the intensity itself, so let's say you have placed your higher intensity training, right? And then this answers the question if it's above threshold or S threshold, right? It's a question of intensity and duration, obviously. Um when you have placed your high-intensive training in your training program, then you can use, for example, lactate accumulation and recovery to make an informed decision on, okay, what is the dose, what is the what is the work-to-rest ratio, right, um, in that interval session. Then, then, then it comes to the fine-tuning. But the question, can I do two of them in a row? Do I have to space them out by one day or two days is a question of what is happening in this one or two days, right? And for this, use the carbohydrate combustion
1: yeah that, that's a really uh really insightful answer really really interesting um and one more two more questions actually that i have the first one is uh, what differences would you expect if you test in aero uh, versus sitting up when in terms of the differences in vo2 max and vla max and so on
0: um This is a depends question, or this is a depends answer. Um, When you go in a lab scenario and you put a mask on, um, you will see bigger differences in terms of you could see higher VO2max in the aero position, which sometimes is additional muscle usage, for example, to hold this position, or especially you can easily get 100, 200 milliliters from uh, additional oxygen demand of the breathing muscles because of the the position you are in. and then in terms of power output, you might lose a little bit on power, but there comes your it depends answer because that obviously depends on your error position and how good you are adapted to it. Um because if you have your position set up properly, um in a proper way, and you gave your time you, you gave yourself time to adapt to it and train with it, then you should not see um any differences anymore between road bike and TT bike. Except for a sprint, maybe right? I would not advise doing a, a sprint in the arrow position, really. Um, but that hopefully answers the question here.
1: Yeah, and uh, one specific on that: so the the twenty second sprint in the protocol, as well, even if you do the rest of the test in uh, seated or sorry, in aero position, would you recommend doing the the twenty second test? You would do seated.
0: Yeah, you would always do it seated. Um, that's something. Um, which is greatly overlooked, especially when you use training data to interpretate your um, performance development, right? Something specific in cycling, it doesn't really hap- ha- happen in running, Like right? When you have a critical speed curve in running, um, then you don't have to be afraid of, you know, mixing up too many different things, right? You maybe mix up whatever, running in the forest and running on, on a paved road, but you don't mix up that many things. And cycling, you have the problem when you take your training data and look at a power duration curve or something, you're mixing up different power meters at worst case, you're mixing up different bikes maybe road bike versus TT bike and you're mixing out standing and um, out of the saddle and then you mix up indoors and outdoors which has a significant effect on power output you mix up uphill and flat which has an effect on your power output so um, that creates a, a pretty good mess in your in your powderation curve data when it's derived from training. Um, So when you test and you want to have accurate results, um, I strongly recommend that you test in the same conditions you want to use the data for. So if you mainly train on your TT bike, then you want to test on your TT bike. And if you mainly train on your road bikes, then you maybe want to test on your road bike. Or you can even do two tests and differentiate, which is like what the pro cyclists are doing. But I don't think it's really necessary in triathlon, I guess.
1: Yeah. And, uh, well, that's a nice segue into the final question, which is, uh, inside is collaborative with several of the pro, uh, tour teams. And, uh, I just wanted to hear, as I understand that you might not be able to share much details, but what can you tell us about how they're using inside and, uh, and how they are, uh, basically making training decisions based on, on the results from testing.
0: Um, I think I can share some insights here, um, this, you know, this, this, without naming, uh, people maybe directly, but it highly depends, it highly depends on the team and it highly depends on the, on the, on the coach, um, you know, what they make, what they, what they do with the data, uh, because there are different coaches, different coaching styles, obviously, right? Um, what I can say to maybe bring it full circle with the PPD is that some of the professional teams like the CCC team have been using the PPD uh, already six months before the launch um, as beta users together with some, you know, coaching businesses and some individual professional coaches. And they're using it as a full substitute for lactate testing and and or lab testing. Um So... Because they see it gives them the same level of accuracy, and it's a full substitute. And I think that's something actually. I'm I'm very happy with. Uh, and if you would have asked me a year ago, I would not, maybe, I would not have answered that this is going to happen uh, because we didn't know about the about the accuracy then. Um, so that's a benefit for them, especially during the times now with lockdown, and they cannot get um, in touch with the riders and do lactate tests, and they don't see them in races, and they don't see that in training camps. So they're using the data um to uh, make an informed decision on how athletes are maintaining their fitness level in a in a general way um, in in the current situation. and then and then uh, it really depends. we have we have coaches who base mostly all of their training entirely on the inside test results. Um, so on the one hand, you know, what should I train? So the general direction of the training, is it more towards VLA max? Is it more towards VO2 max? More towards lactate shuttling or whatsoever? As well as the small details, right? So uh, again, um, using like the lactate accumulation and recovery from lactate um, to fine tune the kind of intervals. Um, and this is this is different. Um, we have people who use it parallel um, to... to the uh, the normal training process to look at inside data as well as part of the puzzle. Um, And we have coaches who use a test and create a training program entirely based on that and um, need to retest relatively often uh, to stay up to date. And that's, by the way, something not only in cycling, but that's the same in swimming or in other sports. Uh, You have different coaching styles and how people are using the data is... um, Varies a lot, actually.
1: Yeah, Uh, yeah. That's uh, that. That gives a good, good, good overview. What what is the? If we keep talking about benchmarks a little bit, what would uh, uh, a DC rider, for example, aim for? For I mean, V2 max as high as possible, obviously. (laughs) But VLA max, what would what would they aim for? Versus, for example. Somebody who is uh, good at uh, like the the one day classics, and uh, then on the opposite end of the spectrum from the GC, the, the sprinter. Can you just give the Vla max benchmarks for those yeah. types of riders?
0: Yeah. So Vla max in in a GC rider um, should usually not be lower than zero point three. Um, we talked about it briefly. It depends a little bit. Off the VO t- on the VO2 max and obviously with those guys having a high VO2 max you need a feeder also, simplified speaking here, you need a feeder for the aerobic system. Um, and then what has to be taken into account that in most cases the VLMX goes down during the course of a three week stage race. So you don't want to hit the Tour de France or, the, or Vuelta or Giro with a too low VLMX because then by the end of the race when it comes to this to the to the decisive final week, it might be too low to actually counter, attack or attack your opponents on the climb, so that's that's difficult. That's that's a thin line, and um, this is where teams have been using inside to really understand. Okay, how does it change, um, you know, during the course of uh, of a Tour de France, for example, um, and then learn from it from for the next year, right? Learn. Okay, my athlete dropped his VLA max by X percentage. Um, in this race, so next time I go, I want to go higher into the race because it was maybe too low at the end. Um, the classic rider is a more difficult question because you have this in the classic riders, you have people who are more like time trialists and you have people who are more like sprinters. And then the time trialist guys obviously are a little bit lower, and the sprinter guys who most likely win their classics from sprints uh, are a little bit higher. In general, you would see a range between 0.4 and 0.6 approximately rarely higher. And also, you know, athletes who then switch, like Christoph or Sargon who switch between classics and then sprints and the Grand Tours, they are lowering the VLMX in the spring and they're increasing it then for the for the sprints um you know in the in mm. the next, in the big stage races. And this said for the sprinters um it can almost not be too high for a road sprinter. Because um yeah with all the endurance training going on, it's difficult to get it to get it super high anyway. Um so this said, um you will have difficulties to win a sprint in the Tour de France these days if your VLA max is 0.7 or lower. Um that's going to be very difficult. Um, because the power output, the extra power output associated with that is relatively high. And if you look at the energy energy contribution in a tour de France sprint, um Glycolytic energy supply is the main is the main source of energy in a sprint, um, and that's by now um, by now pretty well understood. If I may say that, I had an anecdote last year. I was um, giving a workshop with uh, with a Tour cycling team, and we discussed about their sprinter. And during this um, during this um, during this workshop uh, with a coach of of uh, of a sprinter who won several stages in the Tour de France in a sprint the year before. Um, the news came in that one other of the fastest sprinter in the world was doing, you know, the classics or something later on, even after the classics, like a stage race. And the coach of the sprinter laughed and said, Ah, that's great. Because he said, I already knew. He says, I, I already know that it's too short to bring up his VLA Max again. So he already ruled him out of the sprints of the first week of the Tour de France. Because he said, yeah, um, if he's doing this race program, this close, like running whatever, six or eight weeks close to the Tour de France, he is, there's no chance he brings his VLMX. So people by now understand this in professional cycling, really, that uh, you need a high VLMX to to be able to sprint these days. Because the sprint power tremendously went up in the last years in, in those sprints in professional cycling.
1: Mm, yeah, Interesting that there's been such a development. Um Actually, I have one more question (laughs) that I forgot. And that is, are there any signs from training for people that uh, maybe for whatever reason don't have access to do an inside test that can give them some information about whether their focus should be on increasing VO2 max versus reducing VLA max if we're talking primarily here about triathlon for, for amateurs? well,
0: Science or science science sciences ah, and not, okay. not yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah sorry i got <laughs> confused here um so um it's difficult um it's really difficult um because to really get a kind of a valid estimate even as an even estimate especially you on vlmx is is um is is really difficult um the marketing answer would be, yeah, yeah, but just a PPD test, you can do it remotely. Um, so you always have access to a test. Um, the non-marketing answer basically is um, think about a little bit how many hours you train to have an estimate, for example, about your VO2 max, or maybe you have one of these watches that give you an estimate, not that it's accurate, but it's an estimate. I mean, you will know if you have 40 or 60 VO2 max. Um and then you can already rule out, right? You can already r- rule out if your VO2 max is more 40 because you just, you know, have time to train five, six hours a week. Um, then honestly, as I said, don't bother too much about your, v- your, your, your VLA max yet, right? Um, so that's, that's, that's something I would do. And then, for example, in terms of training dosage, if you don't have access to carbohydrate combustion curves, um, then I would, take this knowledge and at least, um, you know, monitor myself or have maybe retrospectively look, okay, um, is there a typical day I bonk or is there a typical day I feel weak? And then maybe think about, okay, maybe it's not enough time to recover in between the, the, the sessions, right? Maybe with that what you've learned now, maybe try to fuel more carbohydrates and see if it's getting better. And then there is a sign that, yeah, maybe carbohydrate combustion in the training is an issue. Right, so you have to do these little these little tests with yourself um, to find out if, for example, carbohydrate could be an issue, or you know, vitamin X is rather low, um, these kind of things. All right. Yeah.
1: So and, before we go, is and, there anything else you want? Yeah. Uh, sorry. Go, yeah.
0: Yeah. And, basic, and basically, personally, um, I would like to add that this is maybe more important. And maybe makes you a better training creates helps you creating a better training program than puzzling around if your FTP is ten watts more or higher or not, right? Um, because for your it doesn't matter like if your FDP is two hundred fifty watts or two hundred forty, and then you take whatever seventy percent of that for your base training, that doesn't matter. I mean that's that's has of no relevance, right? What comes out is whatever one hundred eighty watts or one hundred eighty four watts. You cannot even control this in training it's much more important to get the overall picture right, right? What kind of intervals am I doing? Um, Am I maybe not fueling enough? Um, Do I maybe need to train more or change my training in terms of intensity to get a higher VO2 max? This is much, much more important than trying to puzzle around with the last 5 or 10 watts of your FTP or something, right? Um, Doesn't doesn't really matter, to be honest. There's, I think, yeah. there's too way too much buzz around that.
1: Yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. That's uh, that's uh, really, really great advice. Uh, so, finally, before we uh, we go here, is there anything else you want to mention in terms of what's next for Inside, what you're working on, and uh, if where you want people to to follow you, uh, webinars and so on.
0: yeah i mean i don't want (laughs) to i don't want to make it a a marketing podcast here um so i'm not going to you know to to talk about products or whatsoever um but yeah most definitely i can give you an an informed update or emphasis that yeah we do have webinars which are for free um so far all of our webinars as for today are for free so you can just go on our website and watch those if you if you want to dive uh, a little bit deeper into into that knowledge. And um, what I can tell you is that all this information educational piece is what we're going to focus a little bit more in the next couple of weeks and months. So what you can expect is to see um, much, much more content in terms of learning. We recently created what we call an inside college, which is an e-learning center where you know, inside users t- can take courses and uh, and get educated and just just started, and this is the main thing here um, for us in the in the next months. They, you know, what you are going to um, to see, um, and then you know, I think for for your listeners here in terms of triathlon, um, the most stuff we are working on currently from a technical point of view is more for the um, most is mostly for the Olympic sports for midterm. Duration two, three, four minute efforts, some improvements and analyzes there. Um, and one thing I really would like to get going, but it's, um, it's not that straightforward is, um, to get something like a PPD and running to you. So, you know, emphasis a little bit more on the running testing. And that might be interesting for, for your audience here. Um, because obviously running is, you know, maybe the one single most important discipline and triathlon and um, it would be really good to get a better grip on your metabolism on your physiological profile without the need to do uh, to do a lactate testing so i'm pretty sure that's something that's going to happen in the next months.
1: okay well that's really cool and uh, i think the uh, as well i want to Uh, personally uh, say that uh, i'm excited to see more of that uh, educational content i think that's an important part and i think a lot of coaches listening to this will also be be very happy to hear that okay so uh, thank you so much, Sebastian. This was uh, a long one I kind of expected it would be, but uh, I'm really happy with that we covered so much ground and, uh, and uh, thank you so much for, for taking the time to do this and sharing all your knowledge.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me and thanks everybody who's you know, stayed with us for such a long time.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, Michael, until next time. Thanks, thank you. Until next time, bye-bye. Cheers.
1: So I hope that you enjoyed part two of this interview with Sebastian. A couple of notes that uh, we discussed uh, off air afterwards that we then realized that we we didn't really uh, talk about and uh, that Sebastian did uh, say that uh, if I could mention it it would be great. So here they are. Uh, It's uh, really, Sebastian has uh, put an immense amount of effort into making sure that all of this is really, really accurate and legit. Uh, It's uh, been tested by two pro teams that have verified the testing against their own lactate testing protocols. And they have spent two years uh, testing this and verifying all uh, all of the the calculations and the algorithms using statistical data that they have collected over years, internal and external data, biopsy data, and so on. So uh, that's uh, just to give you a little bit of an idea of what uh, effort has gone into the development of the power performance decoder and uh, i should probably have mentioned this in the last episode because that's when we actually talked about the power performance decoder whereas this episode was more about uh, training and adaptations and physiology but uh, there you go i think that most people that listen to this episode also listen to the last one as usual you can find the show notes for the episode on scientifictriathlon.com we will have a link to related episode, episodes, and of course, if you haven't listened to the previous one, go and listen to that, but also remember that we had Sebastian on back in episode 169, where he talked about FTP, VO2max, VLA Max and the physiology of those three and how they relate in detail. So that is sort of the, the background knowledge that you really need to have to get the most out of these episodes that you've been hearing these last couple of weeks. So check that out. You can also check out the inside testing service on scientifictriathlon.com. Just click through in the main navigation menu. On next week's uh, Monday episode, I interview Nick Tiller. He is a professor of exercise science, and he is the author of The Skeptic's Guide to Sports Science. And uh, that is a really fascinating interview on a topic that I think is uh, super important. It really is about critical thinking and uh, putting on a bit of a skeptic's hat uh, when needed and that is in this day and age not just in sports science basically all the time you need to have a strong filter up and uh, this episode will really go into uh, some aspects of the sports and fitness industry where that filter needs to be particularly strong but also just general strategies and uh, and thought patterns that you can apply to, to improve your critical thinking skills and uh, ability to distinguish the good from the bad from the ugly in, in any industry. So superb uh, interview. I really enjoyed that one. It's been a while since I recorded it, but I'm looking forward to releasing it to the public. So definitely stay tuned for that. And of course, a QA and a will be out on Thursday as usual. If you have enjoyed this podcast, and you are a long-time listener especially, and you haven't yet left a rating and review for the podcast, it would be absolutely great if you could do that. It just takes a couple of minutes of your time, and uh, ratings and reviews have been a bit flat recently because I have simply forgotten to ask about them. So I'm doing it now. It really helps out, helps more listeners find the podcast, and helps keep it going. So take a couple of minutes to leave a rating and review if you will. That would be really, really great. Finally, thank you to our sponsors, Precision Hydration, that you can find on precisionhydration.com. Take their free online sweat test to get a personal hydration strategy for racing or for training and general events that you might be setting up for yourself in the summer. You can get 15% off your order with the promo code thattriathlonshow15. And thank you to Roka that you can find on roka.com forward slash TTS on that page, you will get a 20% discount code that you can use on any of Roka's wetsuits, suits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and uh, prescription glasses or sunglasses. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving train